It's nice to sit together again. I, I feel actually quite blessed. Um, teaching meditation is a, is a good job. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you get to be with people at their best, or at least not at their worst, <laughs> because they're quiet. <laughs> it's true. And they ask about things that generally matter to them a lot. It's, it's wonderful. I'd like to try and put a couple of things together this evening that I've been thinking about. Um, and they are a bit disparate, so I'm not sure how they'll fit, but I'll give it a try. Um, and I believe they even relate in some way to what we've talked about the past couple of weeks. And if they don't, then I'll rewrite the talk and we'll try some other week again. <laughs> They have to do with um, inner meditation and outer child-rearing. Somehow guiding the children in our life, outwardly and inwardly. Last week, um, someone came up to me after, afterwards, uh, who had sat there, and said that they were a bit confused from what we talked about, that there was a kind of a mixed message. That in one way, in Buddhist practice and meditation, as we've been working with it for a long time, those who've been coming regularly, the main teachings are to let go, not to make anything or become anything, but really to learn how to let go in a graceful way from day to day and person to person and moment to moment and maybe even life to life. And what was confusing is that beside that message there was also put out another message which was to cultivate or, or to be able to create certain states of mind, happiness or love or loving kindness or compassion rather than just letting go and taking things as they are. And it got even more exaggerated when I read that piece about kindergarten at the end of last time, which I heard in a particular way, um, and some other people heard very differently. Um, for those who didn't hear it, this person said that all he really needed to learn as a grown-up he learned in kindergarten, and it was simple things like um, share your toys and don't hit or put things back where you got them, flush and you know, brush your teeth and stuff like that. And when I read it, uh, the spirit for me was really that of simplicity, that practice or spiritual life or whatever was something that was very basic and very human and, and very immediate and not something esoteric or, or philosophical. But for some other people who heard it, it was like a whole list of parental do's and don'ts. Put your toys back where you found them. Clean up afterwards. Don't hit other kids. You know, brush your teeth when you're supposed to. And rather than being a process of letting go, it was kind of the, the, a, a new list of commandments. There's a very interesting story of a man who was dying coming to see Sariputra, I believe it was, one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. And Sariputra 
gave him, the man asked, um, how can you find love in your heart or in life? And Sariputra gave him an answer, which was a series of teachings on the development of loving kindness. And the man thanked him, and he did that, and he attained a great deal of loving kindness in his heart, and then he died. And Sariputra went back and told the Buddha about this, and it was in one of the rare times that, because uh, he was a very fine teacher in his own right, Sariputra, that the Buddha admonished him and said, you didn't do right by that man. And Sariputra said, why? He asked to learn how to have love in his heart, and I taught him. And the Buddha said, that wasn't enough. You didn't also teach him how to be free. And in some way, the loving-kindness meditation, especially the kind that was taught in that circumstance or traditionally, it's very powerful, and it creates a sense of loving Whoever you bring to mind, you develop until there's a state of, of happiness and well-being and love with them. It's kind of like candy in meditation. It's really good. But it's not really the love that can touch all things. It's not the love that can open to the whole of life and find freedom. It's the love that's love as opposed to I don't know, um, disgruntlement or, or uh, irritation or closedness of mind or heart. And so I thought about that and the questions that were raised about last week, and I started to think about child-rearing. Because in a way, what we're doing is rearing our inner child, our spiritual child learning to nourish or love or discipline or whatever. And there's a certain balance in that. I want to read you something. It's a page and a half that was recently published in a, in a very fine uh, magazine called The Sun, which is published in North Carolina. It's kind of literary, psychological, spiritual journal called Hunches on Childhood by a psychologist in... Washington State named Kent Hoffman. This is about children. And it's about 13 or 14 points he makes. One, I'm a psychologist. That is to say, I'm an archaeologist and a midwife to the human soul. And I believe after many years of doing this work that what happens in our earliest years has a radical and root effect on all that we experience thereafter. Two, we love because we were first love. Three, we fail to love because we ourselves were failed very early on. It is difficult to give what we didn't get. Four, our degree of openness to relationship, to the world around us, to others, to intimacy, is established in the first years of our life in relation to our parents and our family, in relation to our mother. Mothering is not supported in this culture 
mothering, nurturance, community, relationship is dangerous because it reminds us of our dependence and the limitations of the ones upon whom we were dependent. Five, the way we were treated as small children is the way we will treat ourselves and others the rest of our life with tenderness and support, with neglect and cruelty, or with something in between. Six, few of us have a batting average of even two hits out of ten when it comes to treating ourselves with tenderness and support. Seven, each person is infinitely precious, of infinite worth, that is worth worthy of infinite tenderness and support. Nowhere is this more obvious and apparent than in the life of a young child. Eight. To have grown up in this industrialized society means that we are, each of us, wounded in ways that we do not yet comprehend. Unless we grieve and thus release these wounds, we will pass them on to the next generation. Nine. The central wound of early childhood is abandonment. Ten. Children are exceptionally sensitive, that is, fragile. Children, we, are also very resilient. Therein lies the problem. We do bounce back early on from woundings, and to the naked eye we appear to have gone on beyond the wound, and we have. We've also stayed right there at the scene of the crime. Depending on how deep the wound or abandonment, we will make certain that we return again and again and again until we can somehow get it right. Eleven. It is difficult to support children in a context that doesn't support us. Industrialized economy, financial anxiety, sexism, racism, meritocracy, dysfunctional families, aggression, ambition, not to mention genetics and acts of nature. All of these, as well as the painfully slow process of parents freeing themselves from their wounds of their past, interact. All of them affect the next generation. Twelve. In spite of our wounds, there is at our core a truth that cannot be extinguished. It has wisdom and tenacity and love. It can be lost and forgotten, but never destroyed. Thirteen. Less violent cultures, Hopi, Sonoy, Eskimo, Kalahari, appear to prioritize early childhood practices that encourage confidence at the core of children, and thus they create a less violent society. 13. The future of the planet is, in part, dependent upon establishing the raising of healthy children as the central priority. And then lastly, 
The way we hold our children is the way we hold our future. There's a lot in that. I could well just stop with that and let you sit and reflect on it and think about it. The central wounds of our own childhood, of abandonment, of not being loved, that we look in our lives in so many ways, repeat and look somehow to heal. And the capacities that we have in our life to create a healthy society or raise healthy children or have a healthy inner spiritual life based on that which we received or didn't from our past. In some way, our spiritual life is a rearing of an inner child. And there are several things that are needed, which may also be why there was a sense of two different messages last week. At least in one part there was. Primarily, we need to give attention and love and energy. It's called wise attention in Buddhist practice. We need to give attention to our inner child. Just as we need to give attention to anyone that we, we have in our charge as a child that we're trying to raise. When we asked the Dalai Lama when we interviewed him, if he were to come and live in the West, what would he most want to do? And he said, set up a school for young children and raise them from the beginning to understand the heart of loving kindness and wisdom. Krishnamurti was asked what he felt was the most important thing and he did, he did in his 80 years or 90 years of his life and all of his teaching. And he said, start some schools for young children. And it's both literal and it's metaphorical. So the first thing that's needed is to give attention, to give love, to give energy. Without it, nothing flourishes. Children don't flourish, and our spiritual practice doesn't flourish unless we give it a lot of attention and care and energy and a lot of love. That's the foundation for it. It's not a practice of judgment or denial or beating your inner child. doesn't get you very far spiritually. It doesn't raise a very healthy outer child either. Beside the giving of a loving and caring attention, the second thing that's necessary, which is a little bit its opposite, but not really, it's simply a different expression of love, is the setting of limits. You can't raise a healthy kid unless you can say no. And anybody who gets past two years old without saying no to their child is in real trouble. <laughs> I mean, it gets very apparent. You see it at the playgrounds and the preschools. The, the parents who don't know how to set limits are up to their neck in alligators or whatever it is, <laughs> in three-year-olds or four-year-olds. Inwardly, we also need to learn to set limits, which is learning to concentrate, learning to say a healthy no, to not 
indulge ourselves in ways that are harmful or to get lost in things. And then when the choice comes, should I follow this further or is it time to really let go? To learn how to say no. To learn how to steady ourselves. To learn to create boundaries. To learn to separate. This is the work of children. And it's the work in our spiritual life too. To see what's healthy food and what's not. And give what's healthy to our inner spirit and child as well as to the outer. Is this clear to you? That that's as important an aspect of love as that which holds a child in tenderness. To give attention and love is the first. To set limits out of love. To say no, separation. Wise discipline. And then the third is trust. These days, we tend to push children in our culture. And if you're interested in some interesting reading in education, read some of the... Uh, there's a psychologist at Harvard, excuse me, at Tufts, named um, Elkind, who's written a series of books. The, the best-selling of them is entitled The Hurried Child, but he has several others, preschoolers at risk and things on critiques of our culture and education. And what it's about is the idea that we can hurry kids up and teach them reading early and teach them to ride their bikes earlier and, and teach them to be achievers and we give them exams so they get in the right kindergarten and the right elementary school. And it's true in Marin County. It's absolutely true. It's competitive at that age. And it's crazy. And it's not just in that, not just in kind of the super kid mentality, but it's in television and advertising and dressing little kids up in fancy designer jeans and clothes that are really meant for kind of sexual um, adults to interact with in some way, to look fancy or to attract somebody else. And we make miniatures of them and put them on kids. Even when you watch television shows, generally, who's the smart guy when there's a show and there's children on it? It's the kids that are the ones that are supposed to be smart and, and kind of have the wise lines or the wise-ass lines and the adults who kind of take it from them. There isn't much modeling for kids just to be kids. We want them to be independent. We put them in daycare and preschool at times even when we don't really need to instead of just mothering them or fathering them or taking care of them. There's a kind of ambition and speed in our culture that's put on to our children. And it deprives them of the most important thing they need to be a healthy adult, which is a healthy childhood. It deprives them of their childhood. Ambition. Or we get so caught up or consumed with our lives and our work that we're not really there to touch, to hold, to be with, to nourish, to play with our children. We're a very ambitious culture, especially at this time. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin. He went to the court of the emir, of the kind of provincial 
leader because he heard they were looking to hire some people and he wanted some work. And he went in and one of the consultants to the emir, this man who was one of the members of the court, received him and this man was kind of interviewing those who might take jobs under the emir. And he said to Nasruddin, he said, you've come for a job? Nasruddin said, yes. He said, we like really ambitious men here. And Nasruddin said, fine, I'll take your job. <laughs> and the man said, what, are you mad? And Nasruddin said, is that also a qualification? <laughs> But if we look around at our culture and its values, there is a lot of that, of madness and of ambition. Now here I've been talking about raising our children, and I, I would like to talk more about that some night and about education, because I'm learning about it. And to talk about it lets me understand it better, and, and, and I value it, it seems important to share. But I'm not just talking about our children. I'm talking about our society and our parents and how we were raised. And even more than that, I'm talking about our inner children as well, our spiritual children. For at the core of it all, what's not critical is the technique, whether it's Montessori or whether it's Waldorf school or open classroom or whatever, you know, or whether it's the breath or loving kindness meditation or whether you use mental labels or pay attention to body sensation. It's not the technique in meditation or in the classroom, child rearing, but it's what we communicate in some way from our being in our heart to that child and how much care we bring. That's really what matters. How caring is that person that the child spends time with? And that's true for our inner child. To bring a heart of confidence and compassion and freedom. These are qualities that the Buddha communicated to his disciples a kind of groundedness, that there was a place to sit that no matter what arose, it was fine. A confidence. You want to communicate that to your child, outer or inner. A place of love that no matter what arises, it's possible to touch it with the heart. And if you work with that, to not be devastated, to learn compassion, to learn this universal power of our heart. So what's communicated inwardly or outwardly, it's communicated in our meditation. Yes, you can sit and you can open to what's pleasant and what's unpleasant, to what's sorrowful and to what's joyful. You can open even to the worst difficulties of your life. You can do it. You want to communicate that to a child and you communicate it to yourself and practice <laughs> You can use your spiritual life, your attention, to find wisdom, to find balance. You can grow, you can develop. 
It's a lot like gardening. I've been talking about children, but I spent some time this weekend in my garden. It's the same thing. It's planting and mulching and working over the soil and putting in fertilizer and watering and taking off the snails and all of those kinds of things, guarding and nourishing the plants and letting them grow. Because the truth is that if children are held and cared for and loved and loved with appropriate discipline and limits, they do grow. You don't need to teach them to be independent. They want to be independent. If you love them enough, then they, they feel secure enough to go and explore. They're not so afraid. There's a lot of spirit and passion when you work with children that you see. And our sitting and our working and our opening is to reclaim that in ourselves. So let me ask you some questions. What age is your inner spiritual child? Maybe he or she appears in a couple of different ages, sometimes very small, perhaps. Something for you to know and notice this week or this month or this year. What's the predominant age of this spiritual inner child? Now, what does it need? What kind of nourishment does this child need? What kind of loving attention? How much time? Children take a lot of time, my friends. They do. And how much time does your inner spiritual child really need? What would nourish it to grow? What kind of food? What kind of place to be? What kind of discipline is necessary? And where's the kid getting in trouble? You know, or having too much sweets and too much TV and not enough of something else. You know pretty well. What kind of discipline would be useful for that inner spiritual child? Does it need more encouragement? More attention? More time with other kids who are interested in spiritual things? (laughs) It's really to listen inside and see what could you do to nourish that aspect of your being? to bring it to flowering, to bring it to independence, to bring it to strength and freedom and happiness. There's a kind of a balance. Can you hear that? Now I'll read you a sutra from the Buddha. It's not on child rearing. It's a different metaphor, and some of you may have heard it before, but it seems somehow related. He says, Suppose that a goldsmith builds a furnace, lights a fire in the opening, and takes gold with a pair of tongs and puts it into the furnace. From time to time he blows on it, From time to time, he sprinkles water upon it. And from time to time, he examines it closely. If the goldsmith were to blow on the gold continuously, it might be heated too much and ruin it. If he continuously sprinkled water on it, it would be cooled. 
if he were only to look at it, the gold would not come to perfect refinement. But if from time to time this goldsmith attends to each of these three functions, the gold will become pliant, workable, bright, and will be easily molded. And whatever beautiful ornament the goldsmith wishes to make of it, earrings, necklace, golden chain, it can now be used for that purpose. Similarly, there are three qualities to which a meditator or someone devoted to inner training should pay attention from time to time, namely the qualities of concentration, of energy, and of equanimity. If we give regular attention to each of them, then our minds will become pliant, workable, lucid, not unwieldy, well concentrated. But if we should give attention exclusively to concentration, it's possible that our mind will fall into indolence or dullness. If we give attention exclusively to energetic effort, it's possible the mind may become restless or agitated. And if we give it exclusively to equanimity, it's possible the mind will not see clearly and bring itself to perfect freedom. So whatever we do in our practice requires a balance. To whatever state we wish to attain, we must look after this inner balance. So here we sit and do our practice, or we do it at home, or we do it at our work, our spiritual life. And the question really is finding this balance. And it's really the balance uh, that I just spoke of, of working with the inner child. Energy or effort, that is the willingness to be there, to open to, to enter into our experience as we sit or as we work with another person, to really become present with our breath, with typing, with teaching, with gardening, with driving. To be there not just in body, but to have the body and heart and the spiritual child, the mind, all together. It requires the same fullness that when you want to be with a child, you have to give. Children know when you're only half there, and after a while they start nagging you and kind of asking for things and stuff because you're trying to be there and read something at the same time. That's one of the ones I've tried to pull off with my kid. you know. Or you're trying to be there and thinking about other things. And After a while they say, wait a second, pay attention. So the first thing, that effort that the Buddha spoke of, is the willingness, it's kind of a brightness of our being to come fully into what our experience is. And then that's balanced with concentration, which is that discipline, if you will, or steadiness. It's a collectedness or a stillness. It's not just indulging, I want candy all the time, and I want Caroline's, if she could have her favorite meal, it would be cake with icing, whipped cream, ice cream, honey, and sugar on top. (laughs) And probably Coke or something like that to drink. And it's not that she gets very much of it, mostly at birthday parties, but she remembers those parties, I'll tell you. We hear about them for the weeks in between. And then, Daddy, do you know what we had after the cake? 
So the element of concentration, this other part, is a steadying, a stillness, a collectedness, a not being scattered, a willingness to set some limits in, in a caring way for ourselves, in our outer life, through some spiritual wisdom, and in our inner life. Not just to let the mind wander as it will, but to begin to train it and to, to still it and to focus it. So that we can see in a deep way what's here. First is to be present, and then second, in that to work with the heart and the mind and the body, to steady. And then the third, again, the Buddha talked about equanimity, which is really the receptive quality. That's the quality that I call trust. To observe what's here when you become steady and you're really present with it, then to observe without judgment. And this is where the letting be comes in. Because wisdom comes most deeply from seeing what is true and relating to that wisely. It's not so much changing ourselves, but the wisdom will grow as children grow, as independence grows, freedom grows, when we see what is true and say, yes, this is true, and open ourselves to relate to that. To relate to it with a caring heart, with compassion, with understanding that things aren't always cake and whipped cream and ice cream and honey and sugar and all of that. Things are not that way all the time. Thank God, actually. Even if it was all extremely pleasurable, you know what? You get sick of it. Remember that line from Ramakrishna, why is there evil in the world? To thicken the plot? But that doesn't, doesn't nourish the heart. It doesn't raise the spiritual child in a way to find fulfillment and, and strength and steadiness and knowing. So it's balancing these qualities. And that balancing, that care, takes time. It takes listening. And it takes doing it. I mean, you can't raise your kid by pawning it off on somebody else. You don't get a very good kid out of it. This is Rumi again, many centuries ago, um, the great... um, Indian poet who lived part of his time in Marin County. He says, these spiritual window shoppers who idly ask, how much is that? Oh, I'm just looking. They handle a hundred items and put them down. Shadows with no capital, no investment they make. What must be spent is love and two eyes wet with weeping. But these walk into a shop and their whole lives pass suddenly in that moment in that shop. Where did you go? Nowhere. What did you have to eat? Nothing much. Even if you don't know what you want, buy something (laughs) to be a part of this exchange. Give yourself up for something. Start a huge, foolish project like Noah. You never know when it might come in handy. (laughs) 
And I'll tell you one more thing. It makes absolutely no difference what other people think of you. They haven't been right before this, have they? <laughs> Truth is perfect and complete in itself. It's not something newly discovered. This is from Zen Master Dogen as a way to end. It's always existed. Truth is not far away. It's nearer than near. There's no need to attain it since not one of your steps leads away from it. Don't follow the advice of others. Rather, learn to listen to the voice within yourself. Your body and mind will become clear and you will realize the unity of all things. In your meditation, you yourself are the mirror reflecting the solution of your problems. The human mind has absolute freedom and the human heart as well within its true nature. You can attain this intuitively, not by working toward it, but by allowing the meditation to show you this freedom. There have been thousands upon thousands of students who've practiced meditation and obtained its fruits. Don't doubt its possibilities because of the simplicity of its method. If you can't find the truth right where you are, where else do you think you will find it? Life is short and no one knows what the next moment will bring. Open your heart while you still have the opportunity. You will soon discover a treasure of inner wisdom, which in turn you can then share abundantly with others, bringing them in the world happiness and peace. That was written 1,500 years ago or something like that. It seems rather current. Thoughts or questions or whatever you'd like to share, please. Excuse me? Could you read a poem? Yes. I brought tonight, and it's um, so perfect. You have to talk. Just it's say a, it real loud. A seventh grader wrote this. I have a friend who teaches poetry to kids. And um, Max... Ball Can you hear her in back? No. Stand up and do it. I want to read a little poem because it, it feels so much like this I brought this evening. A seventh grader wrote this. Uh, he lives in the mountains. Max Bumstone. It's called Heaven Has Been Flooded by Waves of Love. Heaven has been flooded by waves of love. Nobody is floating toward the clouds. They are stuck to earth, bright colors tie-dyed with bands of friendship. A man from heaven has been quoted, all we get from earth now is the smell of colored love. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Does it work to look at the spiritual, the inner child, in the same way as the outer? I mean, when you ask those kind of questions, how much time does the kid need? What would it take? What, what discipline and what attention would it take to raise a, your inner Buddha nature wants to grow up a little bit? Any, what, did, what do you get when you think about that? Please. Well, I, I don't know if you're going to like what I got. Um, <laughs> it's all right. I, um, just as a 
mother of three children that teaches, <laughs> I just feel so overwhelmed, really, because I just feel completely enmeshed in this crazy society and not able to separate out um, what might be my true value from from what is asked of me to be a, a successful member of this society. And um, I don't feel like I have the option to, to stay at home and raise my children and to feel good about it. And, um, and I don't feel that, um, that I have the option of, um, of achieving some of the values that have been conditioned into me since birth, like such as purchasing a home in, in Sonoma County, um, and to, and to um, take care of um, the fact that that I did not receive the love um, as a child, and yet I am to take care of this inner child, and I am to nurture these children, these multiple children in my life, the 30 in my, at my school and the three at home. And so I feel completely overwhelmed um, by, you know, just by the whole thing, you know, taking care of, how do I take care of my body, coming to you, um, you know, um, take, you know, taking care of the school, raising money for the family. It's really hard, isn't it? Here you got this inner child that may never have been nourished itself, and now you're a mother, and you're asked to give that to three kids to, to make enough money to help support your family, which you do by teaching 30 more kids. Hmm. Well, I just feel so inadequate is what, is what the feeling is, is that, um, is that I feel like I'm doing the best that I can, but I just feel like I'm doing such a lousy job, if you know what I mean. Because I don't feel, um, I don't, I don't feel, um, really, you know, I don't feel loving and, I mean, sometimes I do, but mainly I feel busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty honest. <laughs> there's, there's something I want to read to you. Here it is, Robin. Um... Remember when he says it's difficult to support children in this way in a culture that doesn't support us, industrialized, financial anxieties, meritocracy, dysfunctional families. It's a very hard thing to do. He says something else which I didn't read. He said, even given a concerted effort to support children in this ever-widening frame, we cannot hope to see any rapid change in the world scene. It may be 10 generations, maybe 50, then again, maybe it's just four or five or 94, who knows? It may be too late for all of this. Our only hope is to live as if it were not. And he puts it in, in a, I think, what's a really important perspective. It is very hard and it's painful when you look to see that you want to give more than you can. And you, you can give what you can give. And you can't just give it all out. I mean, after a while, if your inner child is starving, it's, it's pretty hard. What kind of model is that for your kids if you don't take care of yourself, too? It's very painful. And I, when I did stay home with my children, um, I felt continually plagued by... Um, I mean, I could stay home with them if we would live at a poverty level, but I can't seem to make uh, peace with that, and neither would my husband. You know, 
know, I mean, I, and that's and that's what I feel uh, like enslaved sort of by the societal. Uh, your kids aren't so young though now either. How old's your youngest? Five. Um, five is my youngest. Yeah. So they're school age anyway, yeah. for the most part. I guess I wanted to say, and I think it, it connects to some extent what you're saying, that um, I too had a bit of a negative reaction to the reading from the sun. And um, as you were expounding, you know, the need for nourishing the inner child, um, that's really true and, and perhaps answered that, you know, some of my objections. But I think that there is a whole kind of psychological people call psychologizing, that can be very fatalistic about, you know, childhood trauma and child, childhood experiences, where by age six it's over, man, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that, that that's, first of all, I don't think it's true, mm -hmm. and yet I think that there is a whole way of thinking that is, that is, it's insidious, mm. honest, where uh, it's, it's an accomplished fact by the time you're 10, whatever, and I think we're left with feeling a kind of woundedness that almost can't be healed. Mm. And uh, I, I really don't believe that, and I don't think it's true, and I think that we need to have more of a focus on how we can work in a practical kind of way with who we really are, which which comes to me in Vipassana, and I feel very grateful for it. I don't mean that it's not there. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a way of thinking, there is a mentality that I heard in, in the reading there earlier that really turned me off. And um, because perhaps, you know, I, I was hearing a kind of a fatalism in it and a kind of a hopelessness in it, really, that uh, when you look at reality, at what really is, you know, as you were doing in the second part of the talk, the fat, the bottom line is probably everybody in this room is a wounded person, you know? And, like, so the real question is, how do we work with it? What mm -hmm. do we do with it? Not just, the, you know, sacrificing everything to some ideal some, of perfection out there, which really doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And the, there's the other side of that, which is, when I raised my children, I think I gave them all the love and the tenderness, and yet they're screwed up in many ways. You can't do it right, in other words. Please. We all seem to have children who are about 20 years old, and we're not very grown up ourselves. Mm -hmm. All this wisdom like comes to us much, much later, and you just say, where did I go wrong? There wasn't any rule book, and I think I really agree with about. You just kind of have to work with what's already there, and these children are really resilient, and they bounce back, and this perspective, the psychological perspective is, you know, from outer space. I just don't think it's really hmm. real. That it's not actually the way it is. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Please. Very interesting. that I've known and the books on psychology that I've read. And I think that 
psychiatrists and psychologists of the world tend to be very focused on people's history and, and the um, incredible grip it's got our history traveling around our throat. Mm. And they're hopeful that by working with us, they can mitigate the terrible effects of our history a little bit around the edges and kind of make us function a little better. But basically, that's the most hopeful view. <laughs> A functioning neurotic is kind of the best. So the parents tend to judge themselves very harshly. In this they see every little mistake, but the, the kid doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just as, as we perhaps were judged or, ju- or judge our inner child in the same way. Um, I was thinking about when you brought up the sense of brightness of being mm. when we're with someone else, when we're with our own inner child or with a child or a friend. And what was coming to mind was the question of what is it that prevents me or prevents us from being available at a certain time? What is it that prevents us from opening ourselves and being really present? I mean, is it, what is that? What is it that prevents us from being really present or available? You mean now or? Yeah, like when you were talking about Caroline. Mm -hmm. You were trying to read and write at the same time and it didn't work. Mm And I know in my own experience with people, there are times where I'm really avail- I'm really there. And other times where I feel myself being pulled in different directions, and I'm not there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I, I'd like to be more here. Don't want to um, pass them on to my children. I do want to 
there and let their inner child develop and also be aware of my inner child. And I think that um, one of the points that you said about being able to go back to those wounds, they might be painful, but to just acknowledge them, work with them, and let them heal, then you are able to go on. Generating a lot of discussion tonight. It's interesting. Please. Let me say something and then take a couple more people. Uh, the next issue of the Inquiring Mind is, has a series of articles on the relationship of psychotherapy and meditation. Various teachers and psychologists are writing. And as I listen and people speak, I hear a lot of truth and very important things in the different voices, even though they may almost say opposite things at times. Um, The gist of what I wrote about in in my own few pages piece for the inquiring mind was looking at the limitations of meditation as a as a psychologist also and and I admit from the beginning that I might be biased by having that training um, but i I have two sets of experiences that relate to that to people's past that are very compelling. One is I see a number of people as clients, not just from Vipassana sitters, but 
from the Zen and Sufi and Tibetan and various other communities who've had a lot of benefit from their spiritual practice and it opened them up and they changed their lives and found a kind of freedom that I don't think they would just have found by going and telling their story in therapy or touch something that was much more universal. But then I find a lot of people coming and saying, even so, there are these other places that don't work so well, that seem to be conditioned by the past. It's like these two pieces fitting together. Even more compelling, if you will, is to look at the group of meditation teachers, Zen masters and Roshis and Swamis and Lamas and Mamas and whatever, this, <laughs> the whole, and being in that profession, I hang out with all these guys and gals, the guru set, and looking around, very honestly, um, there has been a major disaster at at least half of the biggest Zen, Tibetan, Vipassana, um, Hindu, Jain, you name it, spiritual centers, and not just only among Asian teachers, but as much among Western teachers. Um, there's been a major disaster primarily focusing around some big area of unconsciousness and power or sexuality or relationships and ability to listen or, or be intimate or money or one of those things. In the majority of those places... Um, so that's another side, that's a piece that... And so then it begins to get me asking this question, well, um, what, you know, what kind of freedom can you find or expect from spiritual practice? Or what things can psychotherapy or a psychological perspective help with that meditation can't? Or maybe there's some other dimension of life or... or in some way, how they fit together. And I'm not even trying to present an answer right now, this evening. But just hearing these different sides um, uh, and, and putting out a little bit more. It's very hard to look at parenting. What I hear also, in some way, is it's very hard to look at parenting um, and issues around it if there's guilt involved, if there's even the slightest blame that you should, this is the way you should have done it. Because I think people care incredibly for their children, and they really do the best that they're that they are possibly capable of, given the limitations of the society and money and and their own wounds and their own inner needs and so forth. And most of the parents I know really try. Um, so if there's any blame, or if there's a sense, as Carol points out, that that's it, you know, either you bond well f in the first day or something like that, or you don't get into the right university, that we don't even, you know, or, or whatever it is, that it's over with. And that's certainly not true. There are all those stories in the times of the Buddha of, of people who were murderers and thieves who came and then heard some amazing, amazingly deep teaching um, and completely changed their life. So, to have the view that it's all bound in the past or it's all dependent on your parents. Um, as a parent, I certainly wouldn't want that. <laughs> on the other side, there's this other piece that our history does affect us a lot. And it affects most of the swamis and lamas and gurus and mamas and whatever um, in the same way that it affects us. And there's some wedding together that's necessary, some responsibility 
for the personal and the universal, to touch something that's greater, to act in the world in an ecological or political way that, that makes it different, or to find something that transcends our past in ourselves, that's really greater than that, through our spiritual life, that we're not limited just to this body or just our personal history in one life. And at the same time, to also respect the power of that which is personal and how it does repeat and, and to be willing to pay attention to that part of ourselves um, as well as to that which goes beyond the limited sense of self. Please. It's quite, it's interesting. I, I asked myself, you know, why that kind of reactivity? And it seems as though there's some part of us that knows that we are not those limited beings, that we are not, you know, merely psychological selves. And there's some need to affirm ourselves as something greater than that. And at some point, I would love to have dialogue with you about what, what does spiritual mean? I don't even know anything. That's wonderful. So it seems like a very good place to stop for tonight. <laughs> That gives me a few weeks to figure out what's okay to. This, this was really an interesting dialogue, and maybe we can continue in some fashion as it goes on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.